Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Teresa LeBranche is the Executive Director and Certified Physicians Assistant at Allure Medical, which is also the second in command, an innovative medical spa that uses world-renowned treatments to achieve their mission of helping their clientele not only look their best, but feel their best. Teresa has been with the company for over 10 years and has been instrumental in doubling their revenue in one year, reaching over $40 million, doubling locations, and growing to over 200 employees. Teresa broke the family mold by being a woman and going to college against her father's wishes. She obtained a master's of science and a physician's assistant license by age 26. Along with lots of self-study in business and operations, she's also a grateful leader, specializing in employee engagement and logistics. She believes firmly in growing your business by growing your people and always seeks to harness the unique abilities of her workforce. She's also one of the founding members of the COO Alliance. So Teresa, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Cameron. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. It'll be fun. Um, and I know you mentioned before that uh, you got dogs running around, so we may have a couple of dogs in the background, so that's awesome if they bark. I've got a couple of kids running around in the background, too, so if they bark, we'll, um, we'll know what's going on in our lives. Great. Fantastic. So, so tell me a little bit about, I guess, your journey with Allure Medical, how, um, how you got started, and, and also just give us a real quick rundown on what the company does. But how did you get involved in the company, and how do you think you got to kind of where you are in the organization today? Well, it's a really interesting story. When I joined the company, I actually capitalized on serendipity and more or less fell into the position. I was standing in the post office and I looked over the patron in front of me shoulder and I saw the Allure Medical uh, return address on the envelope. And I was new to the area, so I had asked the patron, oh, I didn't realize there was you know, a medical facility in that building. And I told her that I was a physician assistant and I was just kind of scoping out the, you know, opportunities in the area. I wish to work closer to home. And she said, in fact, we are looking for a physician assistant. And I said, well, not a medical assistant, a physician assistant. And she said, yes, a physician assistant. And she said, Dr. Moak, our founder, you know, is looking for some extra help. And I said, well, I know Dr. Moak because I had referred patients to him when he was the vice president of the emergency room at a local hospital. (laughs) And we actually had had a conversation where he and I had a little conflicting opinion of what the care of the patient should be. (laughs) So it happened, he actually remembered who I was. And I had worried that perhaps that would, you know, go against my chances for being part of his company, but actually I think he respected that I was able to articulate my wishes for my patient who I care deeply about. Uh, And so it went, I went in and for several walking interviews and after six months of pestering, he hired me. And at that time I was working as a physician assistant and learned the vein procedures and the vein practice. And he was growing the cosmetic practice at that time. And he invited me to become the cosmetic director. And I said, well, what does that mean? What do you want me to do? (laughs) He said, you're already doing it. All the employees are already following you. Just have meetings and things. So I started researching, what does this mean? How do I become a director? And we were successful. We ended up growing the cosmetic business to $6 million uh, over the next eight years. 
And at that time, the rest of the practice was booming. We still had uh, one location. We expanded to the second location, at which time I became the clinical director, uh, overseeing all the medical practice. Um, and from there, I really just kept learning and learning. And, you know, my love of learning is really my success and the wide open opportunities. And uh, we started training ourselves in business. Dr. Mocha and myself transitioned out of patient care about three years ago. And at that time is when we became wildly successful. Uh, about a year ago, we started um, expanding out of state. We now have 13 locations, seven within Michigan, six without, uh, outside of Michigan. And I was promoted to the executive director. Um, kind of by default, I guess, because I knew the business as well as anyone else. <laughs> I love I love when you said that he said, just do meetings and things. Like um, your CEO is a classic entrepreneur, um, you know, probably uh, execute now, plan later. How do, you, how do you stay in alignment with his vision? I mean, he's definitely really wants to grow quickly. Um, I understand you guys just bought your first company jet and you're buying a second to keep up with your growth now because you've got so many people traveling so quickly all over the place. How do you how do you stay in line with his vision and how do you keep him aligned with the plans that you want to put in place to grow the business? Well, that's been uh, a unique position of mine because I do have medical background. I understand his language and my Colby score is similar to his in some regards so that I'm able to vision like he is um, so I can clearly see his vision. Mm. Where I differ from him is that I'm able to translate the vision into a strategic plan and I'm able to communicate that to the employees. He's able to communicate the vision but then I follow up and communicate how we will get to that vision. Got so it. I, I do have to have constant interaction with him. Being his entrepreneurial nature and his quick start, he changes plans quickly. And so regular interaction with him is necessary for me to be able to carry out his visions. As they change and as they develop, we believe in the scrum method where you roll out the minimum viable product and then you measure the results you adapt and you continue doing that throughout time after execution for the maximal benefit. Nice. And you actually use the scrum method in all parts of the business as well, don't you? Correct. When we yeah. roll out new service lines or new strategic delivery methods, we normally run a little pilot at one of the offices or uh, a small sector of the market. And then we measure and we, we get the feedback from the consumer and then adapt to the actual needs. It's interesting. The term um, MVP came out years ago as minimum viable product. And I, I started talking about it, I guess, maybe even coining the phrase MVE, which is minimum viable everything. And the reality at the end of the day, no one needs perfect. They just need something that's out the door that's really good. And momentum drives momentum. You guys are really good at that um, in the momentum driving momentum. How just touch really quickly on the um, the regular interactions that you have then with Dr. Moak. How do you and he stay in touch when you know he's traveling so much, you're on the road a lot um, with all the acquisitions you guys are doing and new openings? How do you stay on the same page with him specifically? Well, I had taken your advice, Cameron, actually, and initiated the 15-5 where I can write down 15 minutes of information I think he may not be aware of, of operational or you know, initiatives that are going on. And at the same time, it takes him five minutes to read that. And then he can reflect and 
email or phone me so we can always be on the same page. We do have a weekly meeting and no matter where the strategic council is, we zoom in, you know, we're getting more and more adept at handling remote employees, remote meetings. Um, no one's has to be necessarily physically present any longer. Mm. We've gotten pretty good at communicating remotely. That's cool. Yeah. And I love that you're using the 15-5 report as well. So again, just to kind of recap on that, it takes you 15 minutes to write out a one-page or two-page report and, and you, you type it all out for him and then it only takes him five minutes to read it. I think the cool thing about those that kind of a system 15-5 is that you often write stuff down that you maybe wouldn't say face-to-face normally. And then because you're now meeting with them face-to-face or talking over, over video, you're kind of reading everything you already typed up. It just starts to come out. It, it really allows, I think, the employee to, um, to express everything. Do you use that tool with any of your direct reports at all yet? I do. In fact, what I've found is that when we do communicate in this manner, often when someone reads this, they've done it in a time during the day when they're really able to focus Mm. and they're not interrupted frequently when you're in physical meetings you may have someone knocking on the door with an urgent need Um, when people go through their email or you know sit down at the end of the day to recap they have time to actually focus and reflect more accurately and give some serious thought to what is on that page and what they really need to relay back that's great. Well, now, now that you're using, I guess, the paper-based system, I always try to get people start with paper and then automate it later. Take a look at a, um, a company called 15.5. It's the number 15 and then the word 5 spelled out dot com. Um, started by a CEO in the Bay Area, David Hassel, and they've created an entire software package around the 15.5 process. So it can allow you to scale this out as you guys are opening up in all your new cities too. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. He's done a really good job with it. So in, in all this growth, I mean, look, you, you, you started, you know, being kind of plucked out of the, uh, out of the postal lineup and, and started when the company was, how many employees were there at the time? Roughly about 40. About 40 and there's 200 now. So you 5X on, yeah. on your number of employees, right? Five times the number of employees. And then you've probably gone, you know, revenue, I'm sure it was around 2 million and you're about 40 million now. So you've 20X your revenue uh, and we're just getting started here. So how have you specifically grown your skills? Like what have you done over the years? And maybe walk us through a timeline of, of the last five years. How have you stayed relevant? How do you continue to grow your skill set as the second in command? Well, uh, I read every probably two days. I read incessantly. I'm obsessive about reading hmm. business books. In fact, one of my 16-year-old son's friends recently was in the kitchen and my den is off of the kitchen and the den is littered with books, stacks and rows. And he said, Mrs. LeBranch, do you get bored of reading? And I said, never. I said, I have a love of learning. And, you know, beyond the books, then you can pluck out the relevant information. We've also been members of uh, Vern Harnish's Scale Up or Gazelle's Pro. Great program, yeah. Yeah, the Scale Up book has been instrumental in our growth, and uh, we've used many of the tools in there. We've had coaches over the last probably four years for the Strategic Council, which has been fairly malleable and changing. It's like an amoeba every, you know, say, year, and now almost every six months we have to change the members. Mm -hmm. Because as the company grows, you know, you need to bring in new knowledge. 
So I've tried to align myself with people who are smarter than myself in different areas and complement my weaknesses per se or lack of knowledge with people who are strong in that. And then I can go ahead with what I'm strong in and reciprocate the knowledge. Um, I'm also completing the Masters of Business Dynamics course through the uh, Scale Up Institute. And I've also enrolled in a MBA program to further my knowledge. I noticed some of the millennials awesome. had some computer skills that I didn't have. So my IT department tutors me regularly so that I can, and I'm now all cloud-based no matter where I am in the world, I can access all of my documents and share them. And, you know, it's, it's been a continual process from multiple sources to continue to grow. Both I think yeah, I think you I think you touched on or nailed exactly what it is, is you have a thirst for learning, a hunger for learning, and you just want to continue to grow. And um, so you were I'm not sure if you were at this event, you were one of the founding members of the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for people like us, the second in command. And at the event I was talking about, we need to hire people and really work on the training of our team and always growing our team. I said a leader's job is to grow people. And one of the members in the room said, well, why don't we really focus on, on hiring great people who love to grow on their own? And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, it hadn't even occurred to me that really that should be one of the five core behavioral traits that we look for in all leaders is someone like you who really has that thirst for learning because it's kind of like Herb Kelleher from Southwest Airlines. They said, you know, how do you get all your employees to smile like that? He said, well, we hire smiley people. Well, how do you get all your employees to learn and to grow? Well, we hire people that like to learn and grow. So I think you actually are the, that perfect type. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> and, you know, I can add to that that now when we do culture screenings for employees, it's actually a criteria that they're internally motivated and that they have a hunger for learning. The there you go. Yeah, I think that's huge. I would keep that for sure as part of your core on leadership team. And explain to your team, by the way, why we look for that. Because I think it'll go over some people's heads. They won't actually recognize how important that is. And we tend to go back to looking at the specific skill set versus the actual behavioral traits of the person. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the culture screening is so important that we've actually started to take employees who only fit the culture and don't necessarily have a skill set that matches the job description. And we can train them with the skills that they need so long as they have the cultural fit and that incessant thirst. Yeah. And the real growth is going to come from hiring the skill set and culture. You know, we used to say hire for attitude, train for skill, which is like what you were just touching on. I want to hire for the attitude and the proven skill set. And that's where the real accelerated growth comes from. That's so true. I, I bumped into a guy last night, Laurie Baggio, who we, um, we brought on in the very early stages at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And we brought him in to grow our franchise development group to franchise sales. And Lori had already been a proven entrepreneur, had been in the technology space and came in huge culture fit right away. But he already knew how to run this business. You know, he knew how to build out the division and knew how to really do the sales group. And it's not like we had to give him any skills. He, he came in and hit the ground running so quick, we had to kind of keep up. In fact, he really, really built out the team that accelerated the growth of the organization. Um, you that's, touched that's on... Kind of I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that is where we're at currently. We've started to hire people with skill sets larger than we need because mm -hmm. we will need that skill set within six months. So, you know, hire bigger than you need if you can be ahead of the curve. As long as you can afford it and be wildly profitable, you can get all the, you can buy the knowledge that you need. Exactly. Yeah. There's not a single problem that exists that a check can't solve. I think that was Dan Kennedy that said that. 
Um, so there's a, you said something really early and I'm going to come back to it right now. And I don't even know if you, if it dawned on you when you said it, but I've known you now through the CO Alliance and through some coaching over the last year and a bit. And you often talk about the fact that you're really the only person who says no to, to the CEO, to Chip and or to Dr. Moke. And so when you keep saying no, you often feel like you're that um, conflicting opinion to him. And I think you said right at the very beginning that when you first met him, even before he hired you, you had a bit of a conflicting opinion with something. And you said maybe he respected that in you. I think you need to internalize that and know that he actually respects that in you. I think he probably spends most of his life where people don't say what they think and they're looking up to him and admiring him and trying to figure him out. And you're the only one who's probably ever really said, or one of the only rare people who's ever really said, no, that doesn't work or no, I disagree or no, I think you're wrong. And I think that conflicting opinion might be one of the core reasons why you are where you are. Just worth thinking. I appreciate that. And you know, I've taught that to my teams that quick starts inherently when they get a processor or a fact finder who needs more information, they take that as an opposition to their idea. And I've now taught them to pre-suade the situation so that if they're speaking to a visionary or someone who has a new idea to say something similar to, I really like that idea. I think it might really work. I just have a few more questions. Bingo. Time to ask. And it, it, it lowers the guard of the person with the idea so that they know you're not questioning their idea you just want a little more information yeah I, I, you got it I, I adopted a three-day rule early in my career here where if he came with an idea I would support the idea I wouldn't really ask many questions and after three days passed then I would reapproach the situation and I would recap and make sure I had a clear understanding of his vision by then usually it had morphed a tiny bit because he was really just saying the vision to get some feedback and kind of develop it a little more, kind of mulling it around. Yeah, just swirling it around in his head still. Yeah, and so that was very effective. And at that time, after the three days, I could see, you know, now it's time to make the implementation strategy and the execution strategy. But before that, just let it morph a little. Well, and I love what you're saying about the persuasion part. When you walk in and say, look, I love your idea. I just have a couple more questions before we can run with it. I don't know what the movie what the movie is, but it was like that. You had me at hello um, for a quick for a quick start. That's our love language. Like that would be that would be any quick start's love language is to say I love your idea. Let me just ask you questions because we we're still thinking out loud. You know, as as anyone, and if you haven't done a Colby A profile, I suggest if you're listening to do it and have your CEO or your team do them as well. Um, it tells you how you start projects, and uh, a quick start is someone who starts them quickly and then plans later often they're, you know, we're accused of shooting from the hip or making it up as we go or, or winging it. Um, and, and someone who is a very high first number is called a fact finder and they ask a lot of questions before they start something. The second high number, so the Colby is a four number um, profile. The second number is called follow through and that's really a person who puts systems in place before they start something. And then the last one is implementer and that's someone who needs the tools or a model in place before they can start. It's really important to understand with your team and yourself, how you like to start things. It's cool that you guys are doing those. Have, have you done any other personality profiles with your yes, team? Yeah, we sure have. In fact, uh, we pre-screen all of our employees before they onboard with a Colby so that we know how do they 
take information best? How can they learn the most quickly? What do they need to be able to be successful in how their training is presented to them? Additionally, we use the predictable success model um, and identify who's an integrator, who's a visionary, you know, and kind of complement the Colby with that. Hmm. And recently for my direct reports, I have had them take the love language test. And I know that sounds crazy, but Cameron, you recommended it to me. And it was so effective in understanding the difference of what a person needs to feel valued. And it was really enlightening to me. I, I instructed my direct reports, take this with your work in mind, not your spouse or lover per se, because it would change the answers. But to my surprise, some of my direct reports actually had physical affection ranking in the top three. Yeah. And I never even considered the fact that someone may just need a hug. Yeah. That's and I'm not even sure that I don't know the model well enough to say whether we have to steer them to say, think of your work people versus your intimate relationships. Cause my love languages and I only thought of the intimate relationships are uh, physical touch and words of affirmation. They're tied as my top two way above any of the other three. The other three are um, acts of service, gifts, and um, <laughs> what are they? Acts of service, physical, physical touch. Oh, and, and time, um, quality time. So, so mine are physical touch and words of affirmation. Now, for me, yeah, I don't need somebody like giving me a, a massage at work or like, um, <clears throat> but a, a hug is awesome, and and or just a pat on the back or somebody who comes up and just you know sits down with me and taps me on the shoulder. That it somehow grounds me and reconnects me. Um, and I think it's really powerful. I just encountered another one that came out from the group, the love language group, and it's called the apology languages and it's how we like to be apologized to. So after we've been hurt or feel wronged, how do we like to apologize and how do we like to be apologized to? And that was really interesting as well. I have a need, <clears throat> if I do something wrong, I feel really, really bad about it. Regardless, I, I feel very empathetic about the person that I've hurt or wronged, um, in, in virtually every situation. And I don't actually ever need an apology from them. Or sorry, I, I don't need a, um, an acceptance of my apology. I don't need them to say it's okay. I don't need forgiveness. I really need to be heard. I need them to then hear that I'm really sorry. And if they accept it, that's okay. But for me, if I hurt someone, all I need is to then say, God, I'm really sorry and, and really have them hear it. <clears throat> Other people really need to be forgiven. Um, so <clears throat> it's an interesting, I'm just starting to dig into that model now too, called the apology languages. That's fascinating. Yeah. In fact, you know, we embrace uh, not dissecting a mistake and we don't place blame when something happens that has a bad outcome. We simply look at the situation and try to learn from it. But yeah. that being said, it's crucial that people understand when to say sorry and, you know, take accountability when something didn't go right. Um, and I think that would be a really great tool. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's, it's really, I think it's going to be an interesting one. Okay, I want to touch on something, and this is pretty huge. So you guys have just gone through, and, and give us the growth maybe in the last uh, two years. So how many locations did you have two years ago? We had four. Okay, four locations two years ago, and currently you're at 13? Correct. And then next year you'll be at how many by the end of next year? Well, if the plan goes as planned, we should be at 30. 30, right. So in three years, you're going to go from four to 30 locations, which is just under 800% growth. It's around 750% growth in locations. How many employees did you have at the end of two years ago? About 100. About 100. And how many do you have now? About 240. 
about 240 and then next year uh it will be doubled or more yeah you'll be at around 450 by next year yeah so, so you're gonna have gone was it 40 40 employee or 120 to 450 people in three years right. <clears throat> right so your company will be 350 percent bigger on the employee count so really this company and then revenue revenue two years ago it was about it was less than uh 20 million less than 20 and this year it's 40 and next year it will be yes next year what will it be do you think i'm sorry you broke up on me oh there. so this year it'll be around 40 and next year yeah so it should be well over 80 to 100 Right. So again, from 20 million to around 80 to 100 million. So 400 to 500% growth on like massive, massive, massive growth. So I was talking with Clayton Mask, who was the founder of Infusionsoft. And we were at a, an event together called the Genius Network. And um, we were talking and he said that a senior executive can only go through two consecutive doubles in their role without the company being so completely different that they're often at risk in their role. Meaning a company can only go from, you know, 4 million to 8 to 16. And by the time you get to 16, it's really hard for that senior executive to stay in their role to go to the 32. Uh, and then I was reading Ben Horowitz's book recently called um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he said that a, a senior executive can only go through one triple, which would be from 4 million to about 12 million. And so the data points are very similar. So uh, my corollary to that would be that if you come into a company with a lot more experience than the role demands, like I walked into 1-800-GOT-JUNK and it was a very small company and I'd already built two big franchise companies. So I was kind of, it was way beneath what I needed for skill set. So for the first couple of years, I wasn't really that challenged. And then the next couple of years, the last couple of doubles, it, it was challenging for me. So I had to leave at the end of six doubles. We went 2 million to 106 million in six years. You're going through that now as an executive and as your team. And, and I think you talked about um, with me earlier around the, the, the difference between loyalty-based leadership and results-based leadership. So walk us through what you mean by that concept and walk us through the transition that you are actually having to spearhead to bring in the senior team to take the company to the billion-dollar level. Yeah, this is really a significant topic because I think anyone who's wildly successful will eventually go through this if you were part of the founding team. Um, I really had fallen into my position uh, more or less because of loyalty-based leadership. And you know, there's a term of title inflation that occurs. For example, someone who's the COO or CEO of a $4 million company looks massively different than someone who's a COO or CEO of 40 million or 100 million or billion, right? So as the company grows, uh, as I mentioned, the strategic council, which is basically our executive team, has been morphing slowly. We've been able to bring in a few people here or there. We've been able to grow ourselves. Eventually, if you're successful, the growth of the company will exceed the growth of a person's growth. So you have to be able to have enough internal awareness to recognize when that occurs. Mm. Realize when you're the smartest person in the room, that's a precarious situation. Yep. So you have to go through what I call an identity shift, where you mm. recognize this is occurring. Come to terms with your own personal identity is not synonymous with your job. And if you're used to changing hats frequently due to you know, impressive growth, I think the transition is easier. 
but if you can recognize your own personal value separate from your actual position or your title, then you can start looking outside and buying more or less the knowledge and the talent that you need. Um, I think that uh, many people struggle. You know, I've had people turn down positions because the title offered to them wasn't the title they wanted. Hmm. And, you know, I think that it's a, the title game is a bit of a fallacy if you're actually going to grow. Yep. You have to be able to take on a number of different titles. You know, my title externally is uh, executive director. I don't use the title COO because I feel like I don't want to have the perception of the team such that we can't bring in more talent. Interesting. You know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and like I say, I'm searching for people who have greater experience than what we currently need. So similar to your situation, they'll come in, it will feel like the back of their hand for a period of time. And then at that point, we can bring in more people who have greater experience. Um, I think as long as you are super focused on culture, super focused on your people and how you care for your people, uh, it's easy to transition them through, you know, well, you're part of the team right now, but you're not going to be part of the team later. They kind of can come to grips to it if you focus on their value and focus on their needs, which is the primary reason I started doing the love language test because I need to know how these people want to feel valued and wow. how to let them maintain their pride, maintain their value and not feel slighted that they need to be in a little different position because the company is just so big. Yeah. And you've like, this is like Dalai Lama shit. Um, like you're, you're speaking in business concepts or business understanding at a level like the Dalai Lama speaks about wisdom in life. Like, I don't know if people are truly tapped into how much you actually get this transition you're undertaking for the entire company. So you're actually hiring the team that will go above virtually everyone in the company today. Like really... Right. So you're going to be hiring like CFO, COO, chief marketing officer, like, and, and, and having to actually make all of those chess moves to make sure that everybody who's there feels loved and accepted and has great roles and, and is even a part of the recruiting process, I think too, like you guys are actually even, you know, helping to recruit and interview these senior people and then, and then integrate them. So how do you go about that? Um, and, and, and give us some of the specific things you're going to be doing to make sure that as an example, that the next level leaders coming in get integrated into the company and get onboarded. Walk us through what you're looking at and thinking about. Yeah, that's a really good question, Cameron. Um, again, I have used persuasion quite a bit. I've been prepping the teams for the transition. In fact, I myself, I have described the transition that, you know, every department is going to get a friend. We're going to be bringing someone who has more experience, um, you know, with a bigger company, and they are going to mentor us. They're going to help us learn. They're going to help us get to where we need to be. We've done such a fantastic, phenomenal job that we're now in the position where we can bring in people with more experience. And so by my own uh, volition to hire a COO to basically be my own mentor, I took the first step because I want them to see how this can be done gracefully mm. and how it doesn't devalue me. I will always have a function in the company that I help build. I may not be the CEO or I may not be a national COO and that's okay because I did good. You know, they've all done well. 
I mean, we've we've gone from we actually doubled from 20 million to 40 million in one year. We've gotten Detroit Free Press, Free Press top places to work in 2016 and through 2017. Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in 2017. Cranes cool places to work Detroit 2016 and 18. I feel proud. Yeah, so, well, you should. Yeah, and there's no shame in picking my own boss, right? At least now we we have the uh, authority and the position and the value that we can pick people who complement our team. They add to it. It's synergistic. It's not well, that we be replaced. Well, okay. So let me touch on something as well. You're actually being given the opportunity and the challenge to go out and recruit and bring in your senior team and bring in the next group that's going to take you from you know where you are to where you're going to have to go. I never had that option. I grew the company from 2 million to 106 million and then I was fired. I was let go, not because I'd done anything wrong. I think I was probably at the time a little bit of misguided by the board with, um, with Brian, but instead of Brian letting me help choose my replacement and help grow it out, he just replaced me and I left and then he went 12 months to find my replacement. And the company kind of struggled during that 12 month period. Then they brought on the former president of Starbucks us to come in and replace me so i'm sitting there going holy fuck this is a huge business she comes in 12 months later and says what a cute little company you know com <laughs> complete completely different perspectives right amazingly interestingly she actually didn't last she was only there for 12 months and then um she was let go for for completely different reasons than i was and now they've got a, a, a close friend of mine who i've known for 30 years has been their chief operating officer for about seven years i think um but but in that I think in that period, like I looked at someone like Lonnie coming in from Starbucks and went, wow, like she's really really solid. Like I I couldn't do anything she can do. I couldn't understand the company politics. I couldn't understand the size of the business and the complexity of the numbers. And Brian and I were being so entrepreneurial when we were a hundred million dollar company. That doesn't work anymore. You know, we can't have two very very entrepreneurial leaders who are making entrepreneurial decisions and acting like you know, a cash was our oxygen and I was making mistakes. So I think it's amazing that you're being given the opportunity to grow your team, <clears throat> which really means you're still in charge. Just so you know, like when you're, actually, when you're actually going, and by the way, the person that you're recruiting and hiring is going to always be looking at you as a leader because they're having to impress you and sell you. And you're going to be in a very senior leadership role in that company until you decide you don't want to be there. Just well, my I don't know that I'll ever decide that because I love my people. We handpicked all of them so far. But, you know, I actually have had this conversation with the gentleman that I'm bringing in. Uh, I made it clear that he, one of his priorities is to mentor me and the other senior leaders. And, you know, I also had a discussion with him that it will be pertinent for myself and the CEO to endorse him so that the mm -hmm. teams trust him so that he can have influence more quickly. Yep. Um, you know, because they've not had any other leaders, especially from outside. Right. So it's crucial that the existing leaders endorse the new leaders and that everything is cohesive so they can be effective. To me, well, it's important that the company succeeds. And most of, your, most of your management team, your strategic council has been with the company for five to seven years, right? Correct. So this is a whole huge, massive shift for them, for all of them. So the, the new COO's job when they come into the organization or any new senior leader's job, when you're hiring somebody with all the proven skills and with a really strong culture and, and you know, the right behavior traits, and we bring in the right person using the systems from top grading or who, and we know we're bringing that right person in, I always say they're like a big boulder. 
and and their job as a boulder is to get to the bottom of the pond and they will like we've got they've got the skills they've got the right fit they're going to sink to the bottom of the pond perfectly just like they're supposed to and we often spend so much time trying to make sure they're okay and to integrate them and to onboard them that we miss the ripple effects and we miss the ripples that that boulder causes and they cause good ripples and bad ripples so thinking about that for a second what ripple effects are you going to be looking at good and bad what positive and, and kind of worrisome things are you going to be looking for as a team as this, these new senior leaders come in? Well, I feel the greatest disadvantage to someone new is they don't have the relationship knowledge that the current leaders have. <laughs> There's unwritten, you know, just diplomatic things that occur. There are certain people who are leading who don't have a title of leading and People with a scarcity mindset, if they're not coached properly, will be negatively impacted by new changes that occur. And I want these new changes to occur. I want him to come in and show us, hey, I think this might be a better way. And we're like, wow, why didn't we think of that? You know, but if someone's not coached in the, on the front lines, they may not be so uh, in tune to follow that lead. Or to understand the change, they may become disengaged. Um, employee engagement, as you mentioned, is one of my passions. And Great. so I'll be watching to see uh, when he doesn't understand the relationship knowledge to mm. kind of be by his side and say, oh, well, you should probably know this or that, you know, because it's not in any manual. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got a feeling that you'll actually be doing it before as well. I've got a feeling you're, you're smart enough that you're going to be able to preemptively strike and preemptively kind of coach he and the team on all of those different issues too. I, I just saw it happen to me the other day. I, was, um, I thought I was kind of being funny with uh, my girlfriend's mom and I completely pissed her off and it's because I didn't know her well enough. And what would have worked in prior relationships or would have worked in my family didn't work at all and um, caused a huge fight. And it was because I completely misread the situation and misread the person. And, um, you know, had I been briefed more or had they been briefed more, we probably would have been able to get through it easier. So I think it's smart that you are, um, are going through that and, and thinking about that. Tell yeah, me about, go ahead. Oh, I have been teaching the teams a five-second rule that I use for myself, and I've taught my teenage boys who are testosterone-laden heathens, as you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you basically, when you would like to give your opinion, you count backwards from five and practice your, you know, rhythmic breathing to make sure that not the words you say, but the tone, the pace, and the volume that you're using is appropriate. Mm. And during that five seconds, you should do a little check mark of if there are any situations or relationships that you may not be aware of that would preclude you from speaking at all. That's so great. I hope he can adapt that as well. I, I'm taking that um, huge because yeah, my and with my kids, but also in business, I think that five second rule and the way you laid it out is really powerful. So I've got a couple, couple final questions. One is I'd love to know, um, you know, what you've pulled out of your time in your first year, because you've just uh, joined and, and renewed for your second year with the COO Alliance. So what have you learned and where do you think you've grown um, in your own personal skills or what have you learned that you've brought back into the company? Maybe one or two big kind of highlights from your first year in the COO Alliance. Well, that's a fascinating question because I did not have the foresight coming in to the COO Alliance of what I was in for. 
my CEO basically told me to join. I go, CEO Alliance, why do you want me to go to that? And he said, just go. I said, okay, fine. I don't like to travel alone. It's far from home, yada, yada. So I show up bright and shiny, you know, go to the uh, reception the first evening. The very next day, the very first day of my first COO Alliance, I almost cried. And I'm not a crier. And I realized what I had not known for all of these years was how alone mm. I was. Mm. Because I was leading everyone, there was no one for me to confide in. I mean, you can't necessarily go to a CEO. They're not that type of person that are going to, you know, yeah. not, not all CEOs are coaches. They're innovators, entrepreneurs, you know. So being with the other COO members, I felt literally, and I know it's cliche, but I found my tribe. I remember I found, you saying that now. I forgot that. I remember you saying that. Yeah, I, I felt that, wow, these people understand me. They have the same challenges as I do. I'm not so special. Anyone who's gotten big or who has been successful goes through these transitions and these trials and tribulations. You know, it was fascinating because the last uh, culture event, your last event that I went to, which was fantastic, by the way, uh, Mimi, who's a new member, became a little emotional and had the same sentiments that I had. She too realized that she is alone. And mm. come as it may, we found out we live near each other. So we're going to be able to physically go to the movies or hang oh, cool. out or, you know, support cool. one. I didn't even realize she lived in Detroit. That's cool. Yeah. That's all. She's, she's one of the sharpest members in the, in the CEO Alliance too. I was super excited when, uh, when they were joining. They've had some crazy growth. Um, so yeah, that, like that's the first thing is having a tribe and support of like-minded people. Awesome. Uh, the second thing that I got was a stronger network. Uh, other people who have different experience, we often look to different industries because mm -hmm. although we're healthcare, we're more similar to a retail industry. Yeah. And even manufacturing industries, um, you know, I've drawn from their experience. Uh, Steve, uh, you know, he's in manufacturing and they, they had an acquisition uh, from Mexico. And he had recommended a book to me and said, you know, you should read this. And I ended up reading it. It's five frogs on a log. Uh, then I bought copies for the whole strategic council. And he said, had I read that book before our major acquisition, I would have done it differently. And, wow. you know, that networking is priceless. Interesting. That's, that's what I'm going to pick up. All right. I've got um, one final question. And I got, I got so much to share off. This is crazy. Um, so one final question is, um, this has been really cool, by the way, I didn't, I didn't anticipate having so many like scribbled notes of things to share and links. And I've maybe cause I've known you for so long, I take it for granted, but you have a very, very deep understanding of what it's like to build a company and build an organization and, um, and, and lead an organization and through some serious growth. So I'm super impressed. Um, well, thank you. and I don't, I don't say that enough or, or to people period. Um, just a quick sidebar. Have you heard of John DeJulius? Um, who's kind of, John DeJulius has a, a book called Secret Service, and he runs um, some day spas that are in, I think he's based out of Cleveland, part of the Gazelles Network, but take a look at his stuff. He has some really, really, really cool secret service ideas uh, that you could bring into Allure Medical. I'll give, it, I'll give our listener kind of an idea of one right now. So let's say you go into a spa to get your hair done. If you go into one of John DeJulius' spas, 
Um, they have three different color capes. They either have, I'll make it up, but they have like black, white, or purple. And if you're in a black cape, it means you're a regular customer who's there all the time. If you're in a white cape, it means you're a virgin. It's your first time in the spa. And if you're in a purple cape, you're one of the like really take care of this woman because she's always getting everything done and she refers tons of people. So you can be a brand new employee on your second day and as you're walking down the row of women in the spa, you know that the women in the purple or the one in the white are completely different from each other and, he, and the customer doesn't know um, and they'll even change up the colors of the, um, of the bibs so that if you're in the next time, you think that something's different because you're in a black cape versus a purple cape, but they just change the order on you. And it's really cool to have that secret service idea in your spas. It could be something you guys could pull into Allure Medical for sure. I really like that. We could develop that further. In fact, uh, several years ago, we implemented a secret VIP denomination okay. where a patient's chart is flagged with the color green. There you go. They're big spenders. Yeah, there you and go. They get whisked from the lobby and, you know, that, that particular service line lends itself to a VIP structure. So that may have, that may have been, you may have pulled that out of some of the gazelles events that you guys go to because John DeJulius has been around Vern and the gazelles program for years. And uh, he's even taught the Ritz Carlton on how to do service. And he's taught Disney how to do service. He's pretty powerful and pretty strong in the space. I so love last, that. last question I want to go into, if you had one word of wisdom for emerging leaders or even current leaders in companies, something that you wish you'd known when you were 21 or 25 that you now know today, what would it be? What would you leave us with? I think my biggest takeaway is the sky is the limit. Make sure your dreams and your goals are so big that they scare the shit out of you. <laughs> because if you work hard and you're tenacious and you have a love for learning, you'll be surprised what can come your way. It puts you in an opportunity to capitalize on serendipity. You know, anytime something comes around, if you're wide open and you've done the homework, it's yours. You can have it. You can have it all. Yeah, I love, I love that. I love that you match that with your, your huge hunger for learning and for reading constantly and, and for growth as well. So, um, Teresa LeBranche, I really want to say thank you for joining us. The Executive Director and Physician's Assistant at Lallure Medical, the second in command, responsible for growing and, I guess, taking on the next emerging team to take you from the, the hundred million to the billion. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you, Karen. It's a joy talking to you as Appreciate usual. It. Yeah, you as well. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com. <laughs>